brothers and sisters, as we begin today, there is good news for us because there is a place for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ promised, said to us, I go to prepare a place for you. And that is a sweet promise and one we can bank on as our present hope and our eternal future. So in this series so far on the biblical theology of place, of place, particularly recently, we have kind of used the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant ideas of place to see how those are expanded and fulfilled in the New Covenant for the people of God now and as we anticipate the life to come. Now, over the past several weeks in particular, we kind of zeroed in within the promised land on the, the tabernacle and then the temple where God established those places wherein he would particularly dwell with his people, not exclusively, but particularly manifest his presence in the middle of his people. And then last week, if you recall, what we did was we, we kind of took our eyes for a moment off of the temple as it is established in Jerusalem and we looked at the other places in the land that God had given to his people. We called it uh, our places. And what we saw is that not only did God prepare a particular place, a chosen place for his house, but he did that as well for the tribes of Israel. So for the tribes and then for the families, there was a chosen place, an allotted place for them by inheritance, those places would be kept within the families. And then we saw how by extension, the principles, or at least some of the principles that are embedded in the kind of life and flourishing and stewardship that was called on, called for by, from the Lord to the people in those places applies to us as well. So we went from the holy place and then looked to our places around as well. Those are important and those are great, but of course they do not tell the full story. You have to actually lift up your eyes and look at some other places as well. Places that we might say aren't even in one sense considered to be places. They seem more like places between places. We cannot understand the history of Israel or for that matter, who we are as the church without understanding some of these, particularly the wilderness and its experience for and its lessons for the people of God. So this morning, uh, I don't want you to try and follow along in your Bibles today because as uh, with other uh, Sundays of late, uh, the passages I'm going to look at are printed in your bulletins and I think you will find it easier to be in the, the bulletin so you can follow along. And so we start today with one verse. I read a whole chapter for the Old Testament reading, but we're gonna to start today with one verse that describes for us the custom, the pattern of our Lord Jesus. It comes to us from Luke chapter five and is printed in your bulletins at the top of page six. This is the word of God. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, desolate places, just so you know, is the word for wilderness. You could say he would withdraw to the wilderness or he would withdraw to wilderness places, but that's just the exact 
same words, just a different translation of it. But he would withdraw to the wilderness and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your prayers. We thank you for your prayers then, and we thank you for your prayers now, your intercession for us even now. We pray that you would help us, your people, as we look to you, as we turn our hearts towards you to see your pattern and to follow and to walk in your steps. We pray this in your name. Amen. The wilderness. Into the wilderness. A place that is great and terrifying is the way that it is described for us in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that I read earlier. A place that is filled with fiery serpents, snakes, and scorpions. An unpleasant place. It's a, it's a thirsty ground. There's a passage in Jeremiah that I didn't include in your bulletins this morning uh, from chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And in verse 6 of Jeremiah 2, it describes the wilderness as a land of deserts and pits, of drought and deep darkness, a land that none passes through and where no man dwells. Nobody stays in the wilderness. You don't go to the wilderness looking for a good time. What kind of a place is that? It's obviously a desolate place. It's a place of want. And it's probably hard for us as urbanites or as suburbanites to imagine experientially being in a place like that. We just don't have, Pennsylvania just doesn't have a lot of those around. Maybe you've traveled to some places that are like that, and certainly we've seen pictures of them on TV. But why would God take his chosen people, his beloved people, his firstborn son, Israel, his son, Christ, why, why would he take the apple of his eye and put them out into the wilderness? Why would you put them in a place like that if, in fact, you loved them and chose them and wanted the very best for them? Why would the Spirit of God, upon the baptism of our Lord, why would the Spirit of God immediately take Jesus from that place out into the wilderness? And that's in your bulletins as well. On page 7, you'll see now a lot of these verses are written out for you. The top one uh, that is listed as number 1, Mark 1, 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Why does Jesus have to go out? led by the Spirit, taken by the Spirit into such a place. And, and then for that matter, why does Jesus go there regularly and pray? Why go to the wilderness and pray? And, and we've read already our passage 
the sermon text from Luke chapter 5, but just to see it in a couple of other places, continuing on on page 7, Mark 1, 35, In rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, to the wilderness, and there he prayed. Or Matthew 14, this portion here that I'm going to read for us is where Jesus has heard of the brutal death of John the Baptist. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Why does Jesus keep going out to such a place? And, and then here's another puzzler with respect to this place. Why in the Bible and in the section I'm going to read for us in just a moment, do we see the wilderness being called a, a, a place of security, a place of protection, a place of provision by the Lord? So, so look at this passage. It's listed as number seven there from the book of Revelation. And just to remind you of the setting here, uh, th this, this is an image that is drawn for us of a, a dragon, a woman, and a child. And without going into all the detail, the dragon represents the evil one, the child is Christ, and the woman in Revelation 12 is Israel, and then the church. The woman is the people of God. And listen to what it says. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The wilderness here becomes the place of safety. The place of safety from the dragon because the dragon doesn't want to go, doesn't want to pursue the woman into the wilderness. This is actually an important uh, passage for us. It helps us to locate ourselves along with Corinthians and along with Hebrews. It helps us to see that we as the people of God living in the world right now may not feel like, okay, we're in that place that's being described here in a dry and thirsty land. And yet at least spiritually and with respect to where we've been and where we're going, we're described now as being in the wilderness. We are not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We haven't entered into that yet. We are the people in the wilderness being nurtured, being nourished, being provided for the time, times, and half a time. Okay, so those are some ideas, some questions that percolate in our minds with respect to the wilderness. But before we try to answer these, and I'm not going to try and answer them, if you will, straight through, um, but before we at least reflect on these, I, I want us to recognize the biblical antithesis, the, the other side of the wilderness, if you will. And, and of course, the other extreme from the wilderness, if wilderness is one extreme, the other extreme is a garden. Okay? You've got wilderness over here, you've got garden over here, a, a, a land that is pleasant and plentiful. Je uh, Jeremiah 2 uh, verse 7 following that description of the wilderness uh, that I gave to us says this, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. 
So God has provided that for his people. And of course, from if you just recollect the description that we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it describes it in, in wonderful ways. It is a good land. It's a place that has sources of water all around it and in it and flowing through it. It has trees and it has fruit and it has barley and it has wheat so you can eat bread all of your days and be satisfied it has precious metals in it it is the garden or more broadly speaking the good land it's a pleasant place it's an abundant place and the descriptions of it are edenic right they sound to us familiar they sound like if if somehow we took it out of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and we read that description, that description sounds like it might apply to Eden itself. Or if you carry it forward, it sounds like the kind of description you would give to the new heavens and the new earth, the kind of description that we find, for example, in Revelation 21 and 22, describing the new heavens and the new earth. And the reality is we also find Jesus praying in places exactly like that as well. The, the sixth reference here on page 7 is from Luke chapter 22. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. This is uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, probably a, a grove of olive trees and other things. Uh, but this is his custom to go to the garden, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And so, so we've got gardens on the one hand, wilderness on the other, kind of a point counterpoint for us in scripture to consider these two places. Now, one more time you'll allow me, before we try and make sense of all that, I need, to, I need to add one more topographical feature, specifically mountains. Mountains play a significant role in the Bible. Uh, think of Eden for a moment. Eden, while we don't read it was on a mountain, there are enough allusions to it to make us think that that's probably what Eden was, somewhere towards the top of a mountain because the waters that came forth from the spring in the center of it flowed down from Eden and, to, and watered other places. Or you can think of Mount Ararat where the ark from Noah rested on top of that mountain or Mount Moriah where Abraham was commanded to offer Isaac as the sacrifice, or we can come forward then and think of the Mount of the Lord, which is to say Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and, and, and hearing the voice of the Lord or the burning bush from that particular place. You can continue on into the book of Joshua and think about Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal when they get into the land from Joshua chapter 8, and the Israelites are on both of these mountains, and they're alternating between the blessings and curses of the covenant according to the command of God speaking from one mountain to the other mountain. And then, of course, we can think of Mount Zion, uh, where Jerusalem is. We can think of the heavenly Mount Zion. We can think of the Sermon on the Mount. We can think of the Mount of Transfiguration. 
mountains figure significantly, which then it is unsurprising to read Luke 6, 12, uh, number four on page seven. The context here is this is the choosing of the 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And then Matthew 14, 23, right after that one, this is upon feed, the feeding of the 5,000. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So three features, three places, three settings on this earth. Inside, outside of Israel, you've got the wilderness, gardens, and mountains. And what I want us to consider today is the importance of those places, the significance of those places. Now, let me hem this in a bit because I know you're going to go, wait, are, what are we, exactly are we talking about here? Let me just hem it in a little bit. Whatever I say, don't hear me saying that these places are somehow animated, that they become actual characters in a story. But on the one hand, while you don't hear me saying that, I do want you to realize that they are not merely like the painted scenery in the background of some kind of a play. They're not incidental. They're not random. They are, in fact, integral components of the story, integral components of what God is doing with his people. They are infused with purpose and with intent. There is a deliberateness about them, a deliberateness about why God puts people there and why people go to these places. It is, in fact, intentional. Jesus and other people aren't just in these locations by happenstance. They didn't just happen upon them. Rather, they are part of the purposes of God. They are places where consistently, throughout the ages, we encounter God in a unique way. In those places, in those spaces, each place has its own peculiarity. And in this way, if you'll allow the word, we, we can say that these places, the wilderness, mountains, and gardens, are enchanting, or even enchanted. And if that word is too tough for you, just read a little bit more C.S. Lewis, and maybe you'll be able to envision and enable yourself to say the word that a place is enchanting or even enchanted. Now, before we go further, I want to just take another step back and say a couple of things. First of all, God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. And we have seen in particular how in the Old Covenant especially, God revealed himself particularly in the tabernacle and then in the temple. He is present especially in that place while everyone recognized that the whole heavens aren't enough to contain him. So a particular presence and an omnipresence as well. And then what we've also spoken of, and I don't want to deny any of this, is the reality of the presence of God being with his people corporately in us as we're gathered together as the church, 
and then even recognizing uh, the, the extent to which we individually, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this by way of, of again, hemming in. Bottom of page seven, you'll see a section written there from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is of religious worship and the Sabbath day. It says this, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or toward which it is directed. Now, this is immediately speaking to the Old Covenant, okay? But, but some of which got transferred into the church, especially in the medieval ages. But it's immediately speaking of the Old Covenant because, of course, that was where the presence of God was in particular. You were commanded to go to that place, and if you couldn't get to that place, you were commanded when you prayed to pray towards it. Okay, so, you, so that's what's being referenced here, not, not now. But God is to be worshipped everywhere, in spirit and in truth, John 4, a passage we've looked at. As in private families daily, and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God, by his word or providence, calleth thereunto. Whatever you hear me saying today, and I'm often surprised by what people hear me saying in a particular sermon, whatever you hear me saying, don't hear me contradicting what is written right there, because that is true for us. Pray. Pray wherever you are. Pray on your bed. Pray in your office. Pray at your desk. Pray in your homes. I know that some of you have a particular spot that you enjoy for prayer where you meet with God. For some of you, it's a chair. For some of you, it may be your bed. For others, it may be a desk. Pray in all of those places. Pray in a closet the Lord sees in secret, and he is with you. And all of that is true. All of that is true and was more true for our Lord Jesus, he who was full of the Spirit and knew full well of the presence of the Lord in prayer. And yet, and yet, he sought out mountains and gardens and wilderness in which to pray. Because those places heighten and quicken our apprehension of who we are, our understanding of who we are, and our apprehension of who God is and his presence with us. We prayed earlier in the service the prayer uh, the valley of vision. And this is the point. Mountains and wilderness and gardens, and yes, uh, valleys as well, they sharpen our spiritual vision. They expose us before God, and they at the exact same time reveal God to us. In those places, the busyness, the concerns, the distractions, the cares of Babylon, which is to say the cares of the world, 
those things in those places are kind of put behind. The distractions are left behind, and we are left with ourselves before God. And in those places, then, God brightens before us. A quote. I don't think it is enough appreciated how much an outdoor book the Bible is. It is a hypethral book, such as Thoreau talked about. A book open to the sky. It is best read and understood outdoors. And the farther outdoors, the better where that has been my experience of it. That's a, that's a Wendell Berry quote. And before I go on, I have to uh, uh, edit my sermon from last week. At one point in the sermon last week, I, I quoted Wendell Berry by saying, everything turns on affection. And in my reading this week, I realized he was quoting when he said that he was quoting from E.M. Forster and Howard's End. So note that correction for last week. But it's an outside book. It's open to the sky. If you had never been outside and had your Bible, you wouldn't appreciate all the things that are said there. Because everything in the Bible, almost everything, not everything, has this outsideness about even when you're inside the temple, it's decorated with stuff that is outside. Okay, so you're inside the temple, but the decorations, the, the trees and the fruits and the animals that are decorating, adorning all of the walls that are there, remind you of things outside. Our Lord went outside. He sought wilderness and mountains and gardens to secure secret time with his Father. He went to them to get time alone with God. That's why he went to those places. In his perfect humanity, he desired that time. In, in his humanity, he needed that time. He valued that time. He did not climb the mountain because it was there. He did not climb the mountain so that he could then get on his mountain bike and race down the mountain, or get on his skis and race down the mountain. He didn't climb the mountain to log it, or to tell other people that he climbed it. He didn't race other people up the mountain. He climbed it to commune, to listen, to speak, to be. In the quiet presence of his Abba Father, where other things were pushed aside, and he was there alone with his Father. John Muir, the great naturalist responsible for uh, much of the development and study of the national parks and national park system, said, the mountains are calling and I must go. And if you've been to any national park, you've seen that plastered on mugs and pillows, etc. The mountains are calling and I must go. Jesus says, my soul is calling 
my father is calling, and so to the mountains I must go. See the difference? The naturalist put the mountains first. The mountains are calling. The, the, the Christian, the Lord, the soul, my father is calling, and so I'm going to the mountains. The implication of this, I hope, is plain, because I don't mean to make it obscure today. We should join Jesus. We should follow Jesus. We should, insofar as we are able, take those steps with our Lord. We should join Elijah. Elijah, when he hears that Jezebel is dead set on his being dead, takes off running. Where do you go for security when you're being pursued by Jezebel? He runs to the wilderness. When he goes to the wilderness, he is nourished, and, and he runs from there. Where does he go? He goes to the mountain. He goes to the mountain of God. He goes to Horeb, a.k.a. Sinai. Why? Because there's a place you can hear from God. You get to those places so that you can hear from God. Now, we should take just a few moments to appreciate the uniqueness of each of these places and the corresponding experience of communion with God that we get there. In the garden or in a rich forest, we see the beauty of God, the wonder of God, the delight of his creativity, the detail. In, in a garden, that's where you consider the lilies or even consider the ants when you're in the garden. Uh, this year, uh, the, the, the lilies are passed, and our particular hibiscus plant has finished. And if you know those two plants, the day lilies and the hibiscus, the blooms last for one day. They are gorgeous and glorious for one day, and then the next day, others open, but those from the day before shrivel up. And so I took two, taking off some of the blooms towards the evening, and sitting them on the table between Lauren and me as we sat there, so that we could... Consider the lilies, because they're still beautiful at that point. They're still open, and you can count the pistons. You can see how many are there, and why does this one come out like this? To look at the beautiful, big, hibiscus flowers. You can consider the beauty, the abundance of God, the largesse, the lavishness, the graciousness of God in a garden. You can feel his embrace, his love, his warmth, his delight in a word. In a garden, we dwell in the aliveness, the aliveness of the God who is, I am. That's what he created and declared it to be good. In contrast, the wilderness, also referred to as the pit, the valley, the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of dry bones, the deep, even the belly of a fish is a parallel wilderness experience. The lushness of the garden is stripped away. And in that place, we see the discipline of the Lord. We see that God is holy, and as our hearts are tested, we see the reality that we aren't when we're in the wilderness. 
Our hearts are exposed before him. And so the wilderness is a discipline from God. It is a judgment from God. It is displacedness. Being in the wilderness is a time of deprivation. It's a place of deprivation, but it's a time of deprivation that takes place in our lives. But it is deprivation with a purpose. And the purpose of the deprivation is that we might see God. That we might see in that place God's protection and God's provision. His protection from the fiery serpents, from the wild animals, from the scorpions, from the scorching heat, and his provision. His provision of the manna, his provision of the quail, his provision of the water out of the flinty rock, his provision so that the feet didn't swell, his provision so that the clothes did not wear out, his provision so that in all of that we might understand the lesson that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The intention, as Deuteronomy 8 makes clear, is to do you good in the end. I took you to this place to do you good. Learn the lesson from this place. It's that our hearts might be softened, that our hearts might be tenderized, if you will, as the sun beats down upon us, as the thirst gets into our bodies, that our hearts might be tenderized towards the Lord. Adam was tempted in a garden, in plenty. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, in want. And what is happening there is that in the wilderness, Jesus is taking upon himself the judgment, the sin, the driven awayness that belongs to humanity, that belonged to Israel in particular. Jesus, as our high priest, our sympathetic high priest, has there in the wilderness taken upon that himself, that which belongs to us, our thirst, our hunger, our emptiness, the judgment of being displaced. Jesus is tempted as a high priest that sympathizes with we as people. His heart is therefore tender towards us by being in that place. On a mountain, we see the grandeur, the glory of God, that he's high and that he's holy, that he is exalted above all, that he is the ruler of all. When you're up on a mountain, you see that he is there and he is not silent, that he dwells in the heavens above and the earth is his footstool. And when you're there and you think about God when you're on top of a mountain, we see that comparatively. Psalm 62, verse 9. Comparatively, we, men, are lighter than breath. And comparatively, Isaiah 40, 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, or like a drop in the bucket. How much of a big deal is made of nations and kings and rulers and presidents 
and to God they are a drop in the bucket, accounted as dust on the scales. Dust on the scales. But that in Christ, Jesus says, come up to the mountain. Remember Mount Sinai? The people couldn't go here. The, the, the 70 elders could go here. Moses here, Joshua right below Moses. And, 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 and Jesus, come up to Mount Zion. You've already come to Mount Zion, to the place of the angels and myriads of myriads gathered together in festal worship. There are different places created and employed by God for unique purposes. But what we gain from all of them, from each of these places in their turn, is perspective, is vision. The ability to see God and to appreciate who he is in a way that is consistent with this place, but informs us. And from them, we carry the reality. That, that we see that the reality is that in every place, the call for us is to pray, to commune with the Lord. The Lord of all, who is our Father, who art in heaven. You go into those places and don't say, well, only here I meet with God. i got to be on top of a mountain to meet with God. No, you treasure the time that you have seen the holiness and the glory of the Lord there, and you carry it back with you into your place. Refreshed, reinvigorated, having had your sight re-alive. Jesus sought such places to be alone with his Father and pray. They aren't the only places to pray. Paul says, I desire that in every place men should pray. They're not the only places, but insofar, insofar as you have opportunity, as help allows, as opportunity to get to some of these places allows, seek them. Find such places. Go to them. Stop. Be still. Listen. Enjoy, cry, remember the Lord, and pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to pray. We thank you for your example. We thank you for your encouragement. We pray that you would help us to walk in your steps. We recognize your presence with us wherever we are. And we thank you for this world that you have created. Lord, we thank you for the times when we experience your glory and all of its majesty, and for the times and seasons of deprivation in our lives, because those help us to cry out to you and to see our need of you. Lord, we pray that you would provide for us and be near to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.